Perfin crucis de limitis nostis libros deus noster in nomine patris filii petus sancti amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My immaculate mother, Saint Joseph, my father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede. When you study uh, romantic uh, painting, 19th century painting in particular, many of the painters of that time began to discover from the 1830s or so onwards, or yeah, 1820s, 30s, they began to discover the beauty of the land. And uh, one school that started during that time was uh, called the Barbizon School. In Barbizon, it was a small town in France that had uh, beautiful light and beautiful landscapes and uh, the painters would go out into the uh, well into the into the land on the, on the into the hills and paint what they saw right there in the fields along the forest they would sometimes leave their 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 paints and stuff like that hidden away somewhere in the forest so they could easily pick it up and then complete their work but they wouldn't go into studios and do it like the academics did. They did it right there on the land, taking advantage of the, of the light and how the light changed during the day. And one of the subjects that always appealed to, well, to a number of these painters is uh, the, the subject of, of peasants working the land. In particular, the image of the sower who sows a seed. And one famous painter, he was very poor at the time, but he became eventually quite famous, was Jean-François Millet. And uh, he developed a wonderful genre of painting in which he would repeat the image of the sower sowing, sowing seed on the land. Between 1850 and 1870, he repeated that painting over and over. He's the one who did the famous Angelus painting of the two peasants praying the Angelus. And, um, and, but of course, when he painted the first version of the sower, he painted the sower in a very kind of dramatic way, a very heroic pose. The sower is doing this heroic action. It, it uh, stirred up a lot of controversy in the Paris Salon of 1850s because viewers were shocked at his treatment of what they considered a mere lowly peasant. And uh, the time of the rural poor was very bad at the time, was very degrading. And uh, the fact that they should be treated with such respect and such reverence was, it didn't seem to make sense to the literati. Later on, Van Gogh also loved the subject and also painted the subject of peasants and, and the sower, for example, many times. But, but uh, Millet really had this profound conviction of the value of the work of the peasant, but also that he himself, as a painter, had to, in a real way, be a sower of peace and a sower of joy. And there's something about that in the very subjects that he, he painted. And 
they are sowers sowing the actual seed, but, but there is something about the, the manner in which they're painted that gives a certain grandeur to these, these lowly peasants as, as they were considered. And this is what we have to be. We have to be not so much painters, but we have to be certainly sowers of joy and peace around all the places where we work and live. Whatever center we are in, wherever we work, we have to be sowers of, of joy and of peace. And indeed, it has to be like a heroic task, like an adventure on a grand scale. That's what we do. And, of course, when you sow, you don't see the fruit right away. Naturally, it is the seed of the gospel. When we sow, we don't see our message, our ideas, our sowing, that is, in our, our theories. It's the seed of the gospel, the truth of the gospel plus a good example of joy and serenity. So as we picture the heroic image of the sower by Jean-François Millet, or for that matter, Van Gogh, full of bright and lush colors, we see there a heroic example of that peasant. Is, is that what my life is? Am I truly a sower of peace, of joy, a sower of the gospel, of the love of God, because we have to go beyond proper appearances. It can happen sometimes, a brother of ours, we greet him and he doesn't respond or something. We may think, yeah, what's, what's wrong with him? He didn't, I said hello, he didn't say hi. He, he, was, he gave me a grunt in the morning. Or, uh, we may think, ah, too bad for him, he doesn't like me. He doesn't like me. And then we, we start writing a novel in our head about how he doesn't like us and uh, we tried. and Whereas in fact, he's just deaf. He's just deaf. He just didn't hear us. Or he just didn't pay attention and he was working on some calculus problem in his head. So he didn't notice that we greeted him. But we have to, we have to be source of peace and joy even if we don't always see what we're doing. And I would say one of the most beautiful expressions of charity, of being a sower of peace and joy, of, of charity, of, of love for others, love for our brothers in particular, one, one beautiful example of that or expression of that uh, is patience. You know, any priest will tell you that when they hear confessions, a lot of what they hear about is patience. It has to do with, I lost my patience with my husband. Uh, and they'll give you thousands of examples of how they lost their patience. I get impatient when the light is red. I get impatient when this doesn't work, when the computer doesn't work. I get impatient when my brother uh, borrows my clothes without asking me. I get impatient when my wife is late. And we want to go to Mass and she's late. And this person gets on my nerves. And yet, how thankful we are when somebody is patient with us. When we are late or when we have some kind of defect. And how 
thankful we are, how we see that as a sign of love that somebody is patient with our own defects, our limitations. Yet we might be very impatient just by hearing the sound of the doorbell. Ding dong. Again, ding dong. Nobody's answering. Oh, why is nobody answering the doorbell? But one of the most common examples that irritates people is deafness. Deafness. People get deaf. They go deaf. It's a defect. I don't know what you call it. I don't know if it's a defect, but it's a, it's a product of old age. And you can see that in couples. It gets very irritating for couples. When one seems to ignore what the other says, the one says something and the other one says, Eh? What? And it, and it seems to provoke the other person. Why didn't you listen to me? Those are moments in which we have to be very, very patient, super empathetic, or have empathy. And I can guarantee you, as we get older, we're probably going to say more and more, eh? What? Because that's apparently what happens. You're, the hearing goes. Yeah, I remember I used to go to preach a recollection for priests uh, and uh, Father Raby who was in his 90s. It happened every time he'd come after the, after the meditation and he said, can you speak up a little bit, Father? <laughs> he would say that every time. You know? And he would say it very loud, like, like overly loud, like disproportionately loud because I guess he couldn't even hear himself. I don't know. You know can you speak up a little bit? And I, and I would be just like bellowing out. <laughs> we had the microphone, we had every, everything. But And so to, even just to be patient ultimately really has a lot to do with love. It has to do with how to forgive. Or St. Peter asked, how, how often should I forgive? Jesus said, seven times seventy. And he himself forgave on the cross. Yet, Lord, you were patient with their weaknesses. And later, Peter, having seen the patience with which the Lord dealt with them and with him in particular, with his own weakness, he later said in his letter to the first Christians, the patience of God is my salvation. Patience of God. Lord, you continue to be patient with me because you love me. That's why. So it's true, sometimes patience is described as part of fortitude. But really, ultimately, our patience is food of love. I remember reading or hearing about a story of a young adolescent from Aleppo. His name was Remy. And, well, he lived a life quite far from God, a quite superficial life. He didn't go to Mass, he didn't pray. And it came the month of May and his friends asked him if he wanted to come with them to Mass because this was the tradition in his country that Aleppo and the, the young people would go to Mass every day during the month of May. But he said, me? No, I don't go to Mass. Forget it, man. No way, man. Leave me alone. I'm not going to Mass. And so then one of them said, well, if you come, 
you can see that there's a lot of good-looking girls there. And, well, that, that was a pretty convincing argument, so he agreed. He was convinced by that. And, indeed, he sat at the back and watched, and, indeed, there were a lot of pretty girls that came. And every day, with his friends, he would sit at the back during the month of May, and he would sit at the back and watch. And then came June 1st. He didn't realize it was June 1st. Somehow he just came and his friends didn't show up. And in fact, it turned out that nobody was in the church, only some old ladies there at the front. That's all there was. Of course, the, the month of May had finished. Mary, month of Mary. And upon seeing that, the kind of empty church with just a few old ladies, it's as though he received a tremendous grace from God. Like a, like, a, like a waterfall of grace. It was very profound because he saw the contrast of all the people there with the, on the other days. And he, suddenly set, he suddenly felt a tremendous sadness for the loneliness of our Lord. As though he had been left alone. And that now only those old ladies came to visit him. And he felt a deep sense of shame for the abandonment of his own soul. And he promised right then and there, I think he was only 14, that he would would not omit any longer going to Mass. And he would go every day to Mass. And uh, he came to be, well, a very pious young man. And he came to be known for his piety in Aleppo. And he's always there at Mass. Because he, it, it, uh, it spoke to him, just the absence of people spoke to him of God's patience. It shows your patience with me, Lord. How different is your reaction, Lord, than mine would have been. You're so patient with me. You might have said, uh, what a lack of respect, you know, to, for the Eucharist, just to go there and, and visit uh, just to see the, the young girls. But you won his heart. And he corresponded by learning to pray. Indeed, he started doing apostolate. He brought his friends. He started bringing other, other young fellows to Mass. And, and slowly but surely, more and more people started going to Mass at that, at that church in, in Aleppo. You are patient, Lord, because you love us. And patience with others depends on charity. It depends on how well we live that mandatum novum. Because we do have a hard time with the limitations of others. And that's because we don't always love. Two signs of love. That we are understanding with others. And Secondly, that we know how to forgive. Because we all love to feel understood. People understand, oh, you're, you have this, you have this limitation, oh, that's because whatever, they find excuses for it. They understand us, like our mother understands us. When we, when we click, because they understand us. 
We all love to feel loved and received. And indeed, charity, more than in giving, is manifested in understanding, as our Father would say. Because the fact is, all of us crave to be loved. We all love to be loved. We, f- we, we think it's great to be found interesting or to receive uh, remarks of praise. We love for people uh, to come to know us, to come and visit us, to give us gifts. Not so much because of the gifts themselves, but because those gifts express that they love us, that they, that they have affection for us. And it helps me to know that despite this person's foibles and limitations, this is what is going on. It's not a matter of loving someone ultimately despite their defects, but to love them with their defects. If we could understand that, that I have to love my brothers with their defects. Because those people themselves wish they didn't have those defects. Those, those, they wish they didn't have that. It makes them suffer to have those defects or that character flaw. That can lead us. We know that they don't like to have that. And indeed, like if, they're, if one of our brothers is pessimistic or, or sarcastic or cynical or, or if he's always late or I don't know. This can lead us to love in some way even the defects insofar as that they belong to that brother of ours or that person. Can I just relax and love my brothers as they are? This is why our Lord gave us the mandatum novum, a new commandment, Something that will never get old. You'll never need an update because it's always perennially good and new and active and vibrant. It'll never lose its luster or its shine. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Some people do seem to be very kind and charitable with others. But if it is real, it'll be patient. It'll be long-suffering. It'll be gracious. It'll bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. It'll persevere. And all those marvelous characteristics that Paul outlines in his letter to the Corinthians. And it can be all those things because it's really rooted in our love for God. St. Augustine says, As far as teaching is concerned, the love of God comes first. But as far as doing is concerned, the love of our neighbor comes first. So teaching God comes first in terms of doing our neighbor. Whoever sets out He says, whoever sets out to teach you these two commandments of love must not commend your neighbor to you first and then God, but God first and then your neighbor. You, on the other hand, do not yet see God, 
But loving your neighbor, neighbor will bring you that sight. You who do not see God, but loving your neighbor will bring you that sight. As John clearly says, if you do not love your brother whom you see, how can you love God whom you do not see? That's in his famous commentary on St. John. And I remember when I was in Roman college, I did my chat and I had finished my spiritual reading and I asked, well, you know, I'm ready for a spiritual reading book. I said, well, have you read the St. Augustine's commentary on St. John? No. Well, that's your next spiritual reading then. And they told me, Ilelo en Latin. <laughs> I said, what? Okay, yeah, read it in Latin. Okay, good. And so we had this back edition, which was like you open it, and one side was Spanish, the other side was Latin. So, or, so you'd read it very carefully in Latin, and then if you didn't catch it, you could read the, the Spanish. But it, it, I don't know if this was done on purpose, but it really made you read these kinds of sentences, which were always a kind of a play on words, and you know, loving God, loving neighbor, one first, one second. You, know, you had to figure out all the declensions to, to know what on earth he was saying. You know? and, uh, but what's, what's clear is that we cannot bypass this. You want to love God? Be patient, be kind, be giving, be understanding with those in the house, with the residents, with your brothers, with people at work. Do things for them. Serve them. Be there. One of the more repeated psalms in the breviary is O quam bonum et quam jacundum abitari fratris in unum. O quam bonum O quam jacundum abitari fratris in unum. Oh, how good. Oh, how pleasant it is when when brothers live together in unity. The, the modern translation is, oh, how good, how pleasant it is when the people of God live in unity. Well, it's, they're your brothers. Yes, they're the people of God. And then it, it goes on, the psalm goes on to say, it's like the precious oil uh, poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. You know, imagine that. So the anointing was not just anointing with a little spot of oil. It was like just pouring on this oil. And it would just go dribble down into his beard and down into his... Uh, and, and, and that was seen as a sign of the generosity and the goodness and unity of the people of God. Right? We can imagine King David and how warm the people around him were, the unity of the people of God, praying for their king, and then how the exiles would have prayed this psalm and imagined to be back at home with their king. They were dreaming of being with their families. And they would have prayed, O quam bonum, O quam yukunum, that sweet fraternity that makes us laugh. It makes us rejoice just to be with my brothers. 
to listen to the apostolic anecdotes or sometimes to contribute some little silly thing we might have done. Sometimes we don't have to contribute. Sometimes somebody's already you know, moving pretty fast. But there we have to learn the vocabulary of affection, of interest, of gift of ourselves. Oquam bonum, oquam yukundum. It's like an expression of, of joy. It is as though when he says, oquam bonum, oquam yukundum, it's as though the temperature in the room has risen. Souls go beyond their natural differences. They're not simply competitors. They go beyond the differences because somehow they understand that these have to, the differences, that is, differences in interests, and the, all these things have to enrich us. Even defects somehow enrich us. Or at least they sanctify us. When we hear the young fellows talking about the latest video game, it did, you know, that's, that's wonderful. That, that, that must be very interesting. That, and, and be fascinated by it. That there's a new version of, I don't know, I should know the name, but I don't know the names. But, you know, that shows you I have to live more charity by listening to what they just said. The name of the, this game does on PS, whatever, PS3. So does charity and kindness really reside in me? Not only is kindness due to everyone, but a special kindness is due to everyone. A special kindness. Like everybody should get special treatment from us. That's the nature of kindness. It's kind of special. In fact, it's not real kindness unless it's special. It's a charm. The nature of kindness is that it's a charm that consists in its fit, fitness, its timeliness, its individual application. We say things to one brother of ours in a word or even a resident in a certain way because it just clicks better. And uh, we create that beautiful sweet fragrance of Christ, that bonus order Christi, that divine grace, which is that kindness, that warmth. Naturally, this charity, this mandatum novum will be lived in the daily struggles for refinement, right? Uh, the extreme care with those who we live with in the center, the good humor, the St. Rachel guys have to see that we care for one another, you know, that we wait for them, and that we know how to, how to learn the delicate task of, of sort of humor and not so much making fun of, which I guess, I suppose you could make fun, but, uh, but you know, it's not in a way that would uh, be derisive. You know, Eddie Murphy has that skit where he, he would joke in one of his stand-up routines uh, that, that um, when he was introduced to a friend, he would say, my name is Buckwheat. My name is, and the guy would say, Buckwheat? Your name is Buckwheat? He said, yeah, my mother named all, all of us kids after cereals. 
that we used to have. My sister over there, her name is Shredded Wheat. And that's my little brother over there. He's he's a bit slow. We call him Special K. (laughs) Special K. And uh, and yeah, the audience is just roaring with laughter. But he seemed to have grasped the you know the the love in a family where one is called buckwheat and another is called shredded shredded wheat and another is special K. Or like that famous quote uh, from the screw tape letters where the devil is trying to make advances with wormwood to teach him how to help him in in, a, in attacking a couple, he says, when, when two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face which are almost unendurably irritating to the other. Tones of voice, expressions of face. Work on that, he says. Work on that. Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows, which he learned to dislike in the nursery, and let him think how much he dislikes it. Let him assume that she knows how annoying it is and does it to annoy him. If you know your job, he will not notice the immense improbability of the assumption. And of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks looks which much which similarly annoy her as he cannot hear see or hear himself this is easily managed so let us ask for this uh, delicate reciprocal charity this humor this refinement that a blessed mother will teach us and especially now in this time of Christmas where the family warmth is even more you could say intense and will lead us to great joy and that 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 warmth of temperature in the center that will lead us to that express that love that mandatum that will unify us and bring many apostolic fruits. I thank you my God for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.